The reading this morning is from Luke 24, and I shall be reading verses 13 to 32 on the road to Emmaus. Now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but couldn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly. Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Pam, for that reading. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that as we come to your word, uh, 
and uh, we think about Jesus, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, you, you will be illuminating Jesus to us this morning. In his most holy name, amen. So this term, we've embarked on a series following the book uh, Amazed by Jesus by Simon Ponsonby. Uh, I'm not sure if it's still for sale here at the back, but if not, the triangle, uh, I'm sure, can get some copies. And we're taking time to refocus through uh, this sort of winter period, as it were, on Jesus, the very centre of our faith. And as the title implies, to be amazed by him in the face of so many things in life that, that can sort of cloud over and obscure our view. It's a clearing of the air. For us as Christians, and indeed we would say the whole world, Jesus is the most important person in all of world history and therefore a worthy focus of our attention. But not only is he the most important person, then what we think about Jesus and what he did, what we consider about him, is the most important thing in our entire lives and in the lives of everyone. There's nothing as important. There's nothing so crucial. It is literally life and death. And I wonder, do we, do we believe that this morning? Does that ring true in our lives? The problem we often have is that the culture around us distorts and downplays Jesus. How many documentaries or books are there presenting the real Jesus based on someone's current theory, divorced from the gospel accounts? How many alternative views of the world and of history are there out there that are bombarded on us? And they're not alone in brushing Jesus out of the picture or distorting him completely, pulling him from his actual context and diminishing reality. You know, I'm not uh, really a big arts fan, although if you read the book, I think Simon Ponsonby is. But actually thinking about art, how many of the portrayals of Jesus and the stories of the Bible are more about the time when they were painted than the times and the stories that they were looking to depict. They may be great art, but they can distort our picture. In terms of historical and philosophical writings, I've come to really question or abandon ones that don't at least deal seriously with Christianity. It just seems intellectually weak. If the author can't be bothered to get to grips with the dominant ideas of the last 2,000 years, what else have they failed to understand? Thankfully, there is now some address with thinkers such as historian Tom Holland, who paints the influence of and, and the debts that we have to Christian thought through his book, Dominion. There he tracks Christianity from its birth to becoming the, the dominant intellectual view and the dominant religion of the Roman Empire with ju within just a few hundred years. He tracks that story down through the ages for good and for bad and shows how the Christian world underpins nearly all our current thinking, all traced back to the person of Jesus and his death on the cross outside Jerusalem around AD 30. 
Jesus and the Christian in believers in Jesus have had a significant impact on our Western culture, one that can't be airbrushed out. But though that is important, this morning we're not so much looking at the impact of Jesus after his ascension. Our challenge is putting Jesus back into the historical, cultural, and religious background that we see in the Gospels. You see, the Son of God didn't come into a random family, into a random culture at a random time in history. No, the Bible tells us that the coming of Jesus is the culmination of God's rescue plan for humanity. In the beginning of the Bible, the stories tell us that immediately after humanity had rebelled against God, and there is God's explaining the consequences of rebellion to them, there is a promise made of one to come who would deal with the mess that had been caused, who would crush the serpent, the tempter's head, freeing humanity from bondage. This one is tracked through the whole of the Old Testament, through the story of Israel, the people of God. A promised deliverer, a coming savior. It's not random. It was all planned. This is what Jesus explains to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In verse 27, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what is said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In perhaps the best Bible study of all history, Jesus says it's all about him. From the very beginning, as Moses was understood to have written Genesis, all the way to the last of the prophets some 400 years previously. It's all about him. Well, since it's all about him, we could cover a lot, but we're going to touch this morning on the four themes which are brought out in the book as our guide. The family, place, and timing of the coming of Jesus, the Son of God. The fulfillment of prophecy. The symbolism of Passover and the coming of the King. Firstly, the coming of Jesus, the Son of God. We said that Jesus' coming was not random, it was play, planned, but we've only gone back to that very beginning prophecy. The Old Testament is the story of God working through one family, which grows to 12 tribes, which becomes a nation, the remnant of which we have at the time of the coming of Jesus, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in an area then called Judea, the Jews. To Abraham, the father of the nation, God gave the promise that the world would be blessed through his family, which would become a great nation, a promise that was restated in various forms at various times down through the ages. So the Savior had to be born into the Jewish nation. And he was both on his mother's and father's side. Jesus was Jewish. As indeed were all the disciples, the early followers of Jesus. Jesus was circumcised as all Jewish boys still are. He took part in all the Jewish festivals, kept all the laws of God, worshipped, lived, as a Jew, 
Jesus was born into the nation which held the promise of God to be a blessing for the whole world, born as the one to fulfill that promise. We distort the full picture of Jesus and the full view of the plan of God down through the ages if we lose the fact of Jesus' Jewish heritage and practice. Worse, as the center of the church moved from Jerusalem to Rome, the church began persecuting Jews and it was responsible historically and indeed now for acts of anti-Semitism. Ignoring the reality of the Jewish roots of our faith. Anti-Semitism should have no place in a church which looks to a Jewish saviour and lord. Rather, we should long for Jewish people to come and recognise Jews as their Jewish Messiah. But Jesus wasn't only born into the right nation. He was born into the tribe of Judah, which inherited that promise of the one to come. He was born in Bethlehem, the town the Saviour was foretold to be born in, even when his parents didn't come from there. He was born to God-fearing and faithful Jewish parents. And finally, he was born at the right time, a window of peace in the Roman Empire, a strong empire which allowed free trade and travel in common Greek and Latin languages. It was an empire into which the good news of Jesus could spread quickly and widely. Everything in his coming, working out at the right time and in the right place. God working out his master plan for salvation for humanity. Our second theme from Old Testament, we've already alluded to, the fulfillment of prophecy. Simon Pontomy tells us that the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament lists 343 Old Testament quotations in the New Testament and 2,309 allusions and verbal parallels. All that is going on in the New Testament is steeped in the Old and in God's dealing with his people down through the ages. The quotations include prophecies that Jesus fulfilled through his birth, life, death, and resurrection. We're told that Professor of Mathematics and Astronomy, Dr. Peter Stoner, has estimated the probability of Jesus fulfilling just 48 of the 350 main prophecies is 1 to 10 to the power of 157. Okay, some of you that, that works in science may understand that. It's an immensely small probability. To give you some perspective, the odds of winning the lottery are around 1 in 45 million, or that's 1 in half of 10 to the power 8. Now, we could say, well, anyone could arrange such things so that they could fit within known prophecies. And indeed, there were others that did so. We're told that Jesus wasn't the only person to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. It doesn't seem that hard a symbol to create. But actually, within that sheer number of prophecies that were fulfilled, there are some which Jesus had no control over. For example, thinking back to the Christmas story, if it's not part of God's master plan, how can Jesus engineer to be born in Bethlehem? 
or at the other end of his life, how can Jesus dying on a cross ensure his clothes are portioned out by gambling? Fulfilling Psalm 22, a psalm that seems to be written hundreds of years before with crucifixion in mind, the psalm that Jesus himself quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament hope. He is the one they were looking for. But actually more than just the words of the Psalms and the prophets, the Old Testament is full of images, rituals and stories which point us on to Jesus and what he came to do. The purity laws on what could or couldn't be eaten or worn, the design and the ritual of the temple pointing to the holiness of God set against the sinfulness of humanity. The temple sacrifice demonstrating the need for sacrifice to atone for sin, something to die in our place so we can be right with God. The priests standing as mediators between God and the people of Israel we need someone to stand on our behalf before the Almighty. But actually, the, perhaps the clearest image is that of Passover. It's a festival remembering how God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, how the blood of a sacrificed lamb placed on the doors caused the angel of death to pass over the houses of those who had obeyed the instructions of God. A lamb sacrificed in place of the firstborn. Author and preacher Liam Golliger points to us the significance of the sacrificed lamb throughout the Bible. When Abraham leads Isaac up to the mountain and prepares to sacrifice him, God provides a ram as a substitute given for one life. In Passover, the lamb is given for the family so that the angel will pass by, one for an entire group. On the Day of Atonement, a ritual of the people of Israel, a lamb is sacrificed for the sins of the whole people of God. And then on the cross, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is sacrificed for the sins of the whole world, that all who believe in him will be saved. It's no coincidence that Jesus is killed at the time of the Passover feast, nailed to the cross as the lambs are sacrificed in the temple. It's no coincidence that the night before his death, Jesus takes the symbols used to celebrate Passover, bread and wine, and transforms these into a new memorial, one we partake in today. The symbols of the Old Testament are about Jesus. Passover points to him. In him we have freedom. And lastly, we pick up on the theme of kingship. The book of Judges tells us the story of the tribes of Israel when they've entered the promised land and following the death of Joshua. It's a constant cycle when the people of Israel turn away from him, they find themselves in trouble, they cry out to God, and God sends a judge to save them. And within that book, there's this constant theme, this constant yearning for a godly, just king. 
The book of Samuel tells us the appointment of the first king who turns out to be a failure. Then the anointing and kingship of David who does better but still fails. And indeed the story of the kings of Israel down through the ages is one of failure. There is a desire for the perfect king from God. There are promises linking the line of David's descent, the one that will come who is going to be that perfect king. We mentioned earlier that the line of Jesus' ancestors showed he was a Jew of the right tribe according to prophecy. But they also show he was a descendant of David in the line of kings. Simon Ponsby notes that the kingship of Jesus is highlighted both at the beginning and the end of his life. At the beginning, the wise men come seeking a king. The star portents, according to their astrology, a king born in Judah. It is the prophecies of the coming king which lead to Bethlehem. And there they find the child and worship him. Then, as Jesus is crucified, Pilate orders that a sign be placed above his head, stating, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews. Whether through insight or unknowingly, he points to the truth of the kingship of Jesus, a sign written in three languages so all could read. Jesus is descended from kings, foretold from David's line, the perfect king searched for in Judges, the one of whom all kings are but a pale shadow, a king exalted on high, as Paul quotes from that hymn in Philippians, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is no ordinary man. This is the King of the Jews, the King of the world. We come back to that bold statement from the beginning that Jesus is the most important person in all of history. And what we think and believe about him is the most important thing in our lives. He is the one who is promised from the very beginning. The one who would bring rescue and deliverance, restore the relationship between us and God. He is the one who fulfills the promises to Abraham to be the blessing of God to all nations of the earth. He is the one to whom the history and the prophecies of Israel point. He is the one who is born in the right place, to the right family, in the right nation, and at the right time to fulfill all that promise and expectation. He is the one who died on the cross, the Lamb of God sacrificed so he could be rescued from sin and death, the one given in our place. He is the king by inheritance, by right, through sacrifice and exalted by God, ruler of all. As we come this morning to the table, joining people throughout the world, acting out that symbol of remembrance Jesus put in place the night before he died. Let us open our hearts to him again. Lift, lift him high in our lives once again, let us allow ourselves to become overwhelmed by his greatness. 
the wonders of God's plan of salvation for the whole world, even us, then as we go out into a world that degrades and denigrates the person of Jesus, that has so many other things clambering for our attention, each purporting to be the most important thing, let us hold fast to the truth. The naming to make every day Jesus King of our lives. The one by whom all else is measured and judged. Letting the wonder of Jesus, the most important person in all of history, be the most important thing in our lives and amaze us anew each day. Amen.